On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, Certified Financial Planner, Certified Investment Management Analyst, and Co-Founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, we provide you with financial clarity so that you have the tools to live your best life. Listen in as Brent guides you through creative solutions to various financial problems that business professionals, young adults, and retirees commonly face to make their money work. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Today, Brent has a guest in studio, which is super exciting. I'm really excited to meet him. That is Sammy Chowdhury, Director of Royal Capital, the largest online brokerage firm in Bangladesh. Brent, how are you this morning? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing, Eric? I am doing great. I'm so glad that you brought a guest on the show. This is your first guest. You're just jumping in both feet with this. This is my first guest, and I'm super excited about this. And then to give you a little bit about my background with Sammy, one of my best friends here in Arizona, but he's also the person that I look to when I want to know what's happening in Asia. I'll introduce him with a brief story. So this is now, let's go back to January of 2020, mm-hmm. when the world was still how the world was before, say, March of 2020. Yeah. Sammy was over in Singapore, and uh, I texted him. I said, is there anything to this COVID thing? Is, is this actually a thing or not, or shouldn't we worry about this? And Sammy said, oh, no, <laughs> this, is, th- this is a real thing. And, of course, the rest yeah. is history. So he's the guy that I look to when I want to know what's happening in, in China, Southeast Asia, and that part of the world. He's in the know. Sammy, so good to meet you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm honored. Thank you, Brent, for inviting me. Yeah, Brent, what are you guys talking about today? So Sammy, again, Director of Royal Capital on Brokerage in Bangladesh, is the largest online broker in Bangladesh. And one of the reasons that I wanted to bring him on is because Bangladesh, if you look at the map, is positioned it's an interesting country in its own right, for sure, but it's, it's positioned directly between, of course, the two population superpowers, India and China, but also the two emerging superpowers economically in, in India and China. And so he's got some excellent insight in terms of what's happening in that part of the world. So I guess one of the first things I guess that I would ask you, Sammy, is give me an idea when you're back in Dhaka, when you're back in Chittagong doing business in Bangladesh, what is the feeling on the ground in Bangladesh if you're just considering, say, China versus India, say even versus the United States? And from an economic standpoint, from an impact in your daily life and, and doing business over in that part of the world, how does it feel? I know it's an open-ended question, but I'm just curious your thoughts. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. India is Bangladesh's largest trading partner. From a trading standpoint, India has bigger impact on Bangladesh day-to-day because we do a lot of commodities trading. China, on the other hand, Bangladesh is like a largest military and also construction equipment supplier. They do a lot of our, they build a lot of our roads and bridges. From that standpoint, and then by the way, China owns, it's a Shanghai Stock Exchange, they own 25% stake in Dhaka Stock Exchange. Okay, well, I did not know as that. Well. So there was a sort of like a tension between India and China because India originally wanted stake into the stock exchange for political reason it was given to China or China outbid India. That was really interesting. So yes, it is interesting. The, the biggest issue we have from the trading standpoint is we constantly experience non-tariff barriers with India. And that's why from our traders are very, very frustrated. And we have 
brought that issue several times with India. Now, what is a non-tariff barrier? First, you have a trade agreement. So say you have a trade agreement and you, you, you sign it and you say that, okay, we will trade freely. So Indian commodities come in, whether it's electronics or any kind of fruits and vegetables. But when we send our stuff, so they, what they will do is they will say, okay, this particular product requires additional testing. Okay. If it is electronics or we have to test it. So while they test, your product is sitting in the terminal. So they're finding other ways aside from just levying tariff to sort of slow down that trade. Absolutely. Got it. And do you have the same challenges with China? We do, but lesser extent because we don't like, you know, export a whole lot of stuff to China, but we do import a lot from China. Yeah. But India is, in my opinion, they are the biggest violator in terms of non-tariff barriers. That's kind of interesting because you would have thought, you know, historically anyway, the ties between Bangladesh and India are hundreds and hundreds of years deep. I, I would have thought that the, your market would have been more more easily integrated with India versus China at this point. Absolutely, because we, have, we share a common history prior to 1947. But after 47, and then when the partition happened, so after 47, India became an independent country. We became independent. East Pakistan East, at that time. Right, at yeah. that time we were East Pakistan and uh, West Pakistan, so it used to be Pakistan. What happened was India at that time, for whatever reason, I think primary reason was they did not believe or trust their Western alliance. So they went inward, like an inward looking. Okay. So what they did, they instituted exchange control. They did import ban. Once they did that, they wanted to create everything domestically. And that culture prevails to this day. They can't just get out of. And I would like to talk more about it later on. We'll touch base. Well, well, it's interesting because if you look, China in many ways did the same thing. In the 60s, you had the Great Leap Forward, you had the Cultural Revolution, you right. had all the things that Mao was doing. Was Indra Gandhi, was she the, the person in India that was doing a lot of that? No, yes. Indira, uh, Indira or Indra? Indra Gandhi. Indra Gandhi. Indra okay. Gandhi, right. In the mid-60s to uh, 1977. But she did a couple of things that are kind of draconian. Yeah. During her time, she developed this system called License Raj. So License Raj is a process. If you start a business, it's an additional burden for you to get permits and certain safety things that you have to approve, get approved by the government. They were layer upon layer. So that stifled businesses. Well, it's uh, interesting in preparing for this and thinking about, again, the economic development in that part of the world and how it could impact us as U.S. investors. I was looking at the trajectory of the growth in India and also China. I do want to talk about Bangladesh a little bit as well. But probably about 1970, the economic numbers were pretty similar between those two countries. You had very similar populations. Mm-hmm. You had very similar economic mm-hmm. development. India, in many, in many ways, has come into its own, for sure, in the last couple of decades. But what, what did China do differently? And how, from an, from an economic standpoint, how, how have they made the giant leaps? Was it U.S. investment? Was it the fact that the United States from, I think, foolishly, quite frankly, I know that we, we wanted to bolster China because we wanted to counterweight the Soviet Union right. before, when, before the Cold War was over. Right. But in 1989, the Cold War was over. Right. And we continued. You know, 1990, China was still a pretty poor country. Right. And now we've created this monster that's probably going to surpass us in less than 10 years. But w- was that purely the fact that the West 
seem to take a keen interest in the economic development of China or was it something else? Because now the, the difference between those two nations is pretty vast. That's a very interesting question. So what happened was the investment from the West was a big contributing factor, but what happened like, you know, locally was, so you have 1.4 billion people in China and sort of like a 1.2 or 1.3 billion in India. Okay, so you have large population and primarily they're uneducated. Okay, so what did China do? China, Deng Xiaoping back in the 78, so he visited Singapore. He decided that we're going to be export oriented country and they wanted to develop Singaporean model. India did similar thing, but they took a different path. So what China said, we will make anything, everything, anything, everything, whether it's toys, paper clips, we'll make anything. Now contrast that with India. India goes, okay, we will uh, invest in software development, engineering, and services. So now when you invest in that particular sector, software development, engineering, and services, that requires educated class, English speaking people, uh, that you don't have very many. So it created jobs for India, but for a specific class of just, people. Just on, the, on one little narrow focus. One near, exactly. Whereas manufacturing, you can take anybody off the countryside and put them in a right. factory, which is what China did. Exactly. They right. had the factory, they were looking for capital, they wanted foreign capital, they wanted foreign know-how, and they made everything. So what they were able to do is pull out 800 million people out of poverty. Whereas India to this day is struggling. Yeah. Because they went the different way. So that is the primary uh, difference between India and China. Now back in, when you're doing business now back in Bangladesh, as, and I'm not saying that your, your company specifically, but obviously know a lot of people that, that run companies and in other industries over there. Are they looking more towards India in terms of the future, in terms of developing Bangladesh and developing their own country, or are they looking towards China? Uh, we are playing, thankfully, to our strengths. So basically, what is our strength? You look at our demographics and then you say that, hey, same thing. We have large population. They are not very well educated. So what do you do? So you I, want, I want to add one thing because sure, sure, I want to hear more about sure. that. To, to people that are listening here in Arizona, state of Arizona, and Sammy taught me this, and this actually shocked me when I heard this. State of Arizona has seven, seven and a half million people. Bangladesh is half the size of the state of Arizona. And exactly. what do you have? Yep, 180 million people? Now they say it's 185 to 190 million. So imagine, let's cut Arizona in half for those of us that are listening here in, in, in Arizona, and let's throw another 180 million people in the Half mix. the population <laughs> of the United States. Yeah. Yeah. So I just I felt that's always been staggering to me. Absolutely. So, well, what, what Bangladesh is trying to do is basically sort of like emulate Chinese model. Right. We will be export oriented, like, you know, so we've been doing that for the last 30 years. So that's why we're number two in apparel industry after China. Current government is trying to diversify the space. So they want to get into more assembling cars, assembling electronics. So uh, there are quite a few companies, I think uh, they are building about 15 or 16 export processing zone. There's a massive zone where like, you know, foreign companies can come in and they will manufacture, they will have special tax subsidies and tax break 
So that would help propel Bangladesh to pull people out of the middle class. Except, like, other than thinking about, there are think tanks that were saying we need to add, we need to create high value added jobs. Now that sounds fantastic, but you just don't have the demo, like population to support that. Your first priority is pull people out of poverty, and we don't have very many, like very much time because right now one, one thing is another thing is happening parallel in parallel, which is automation. Whether you copy this Chinese model. And whether or not this will work out, it depends on how fast you implement it. Because now automation is happening, and once that happens, we don't know what it would do to the the workforce. That's a, that's a concerning matter, even for India, because that's what they're trying to do now. But it's I think it's too late. But we will we'll see. Well, I, I think moving forward, it's going to be it's going to be interesting because I think as as U.S. as people in the United States. It's, it's a blessing and it's also, it keeps you in the dark a little bit because we've got a position right now where we've always been this way, where we've got two major oceans on either side of us. We may care what happens up north in, Ch- in, in Canada, rather, down south in Mexico. But when you get to some other countries around the world you, world, you realize how deeply you are in the mix, particularly if you're a country like Bangladesh, situated where you are. Moving forward, it, what, what do you think that American investors need to know about what is happening in China and Southeast Asia. I'll give you my own opinion after after I hear yours. Well, what's I mean it's, it's pretty broad in terms of China obviously going through some turmoil right now involving their real estate market. I've been talking about this for a long time that in my opinion they have some structural issues where they built too many things. I want to talk more about this so keep going. So they build things, they build co-cities, they build, I, I just can't figure out the reason why they did that. But one thing that comes to mind in order to keep their growth uh, inflated. So, and then what that did was that increased the commodities price as well, because they constantly, they had demand for raw materials because they were building stuff. Then we find out like, you know, they build ghost cities, like uh, erected ghost cities and, and, and no people there. Yeah. Currently, they had that uh, Evergrande, I think. Yep. Uh, is Evergrande. It Ever, Evergrande, right. Uh, so that debacle, they defaulted like, you know, $300 billion. Uh, there's another company I just don't have, uh, I just can't remember the name. That is also a very large company about to default. It is a scary moment, like, you know, in terms of if China, China uh, growth falls, what would happen to the global growth and on top of that we built our entire supply chain around china especially hardware supply chain around china so that is also scary i mean it's 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 a remain to be seen but i would love to hear what what you have to say it's interesting when you think about the chinese property market when when we're from an investing standpoint here and even for u.s based asset assets and i definitely want to talk about investing in emerging markets as well but for U.S.-based assets, sometimes you have to own different assets that are protecting the portfolio as opposed to just growth. And we're in this world right now where you're starting to see U.S. interest rates tick up off historic lows. And so a question I get often is, why do I want to own a bond? You know, why do I want to own a 10-year treasury yielding 1.6% when inflation is coming in, at least recently, significantly higher than that? And the answer to that is, is right now we are in an inflationary environment, but what could make things deflationary very quickly? And one of the things that I look at is deflation happens 
bad things happen in markets when money is pulled out of the system. We've been in a position since the beginning of COVID where basically not just the United States, but around the world, it has been blowing cash through the system like maniacs. But what would absorb some of that cash or take some of it away? And that happens when you get major defaults. And so Evergrande interested me for a couple of reasons. If it was just Evergrande, I wouldn't be as concerned because Evergrande is $300 billion, I'm correct? Correct. Right. 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 90% of that is owned within China. So it's, it's right. generally held you know, within the country there. And people say, it's the next Lehman Brothers. No, it's not close to the next Lehman Brothers. Mm-hmm. Lehman Brothers is $800, $900 billion back in you know, 2008. Uh, so in today's dollars, you're well over a trillion. And 50% of that was held around the world. It was truly a global type cont- mm-hmm. contagion. But it started something bigger because you had, you had all of a sudden enormous amounts of liquidity pulled out of the system. And so Evergrande, it's the first one, but then I looked deeper at the Chinese property market and based on their, on their, on their GDP, their property market is 6.5 times ours. And that right. kind of harkens back to what you saw in Japan in the early 1990s, mm-hmm. where there was a time, if we forget that it was in the 1980s where Japan was gonna be the next superpowers that right. were gonna overtake the United States. Right. The Imperial Palace grounds in Tokyo are worth more than the entire, theoretically, who's, who can buy it, mm-hmm. but worth more than the entire state of California. When these imbalances get too big, they find a way to resolve themselves. In, in Japan's case, it's been three decades of, of basically deflationary low growth and them really falling back pretty just dramatically on the world stage. But looking at the Chinese property market, I think most people can probably agree, well, prices for sure are overvalued or else there wouldn't be defaults. If they weren't overvalued, right. people wouldn't be defaulting. But at what point does that spill out of China? which would be deflationary, I think, which would then make an argument why you might want to hold some fixed income at these low rates to, to sort of act as, as, a, as a guard against that. The flip side is, and, and right now, the central government in China doesn't look like they want to do this, but what if they all of a sudden say, you know, we're just going to bail everybody out. <laughs> we'll just, yeah, that, you know, could, we'll just, that, that could happen as well. And absolutely. So, and so that's, I think that that's a bigger, I'm looking at that closely because I think it could potentially be a bigger deal for all of us because it is such, and the thing with property too, it's not liquid, you can't just sell it. I mean, we tell our clients here, you may not like the price of the of what stocks, bonds, whatever it is, but we can, we can sell all our stuff at any given time. Real right. estate's not like that. You gotta find a buyer and it takes time. So I don't, is that something that, that being more in that region, having more, being more plugged into that part of the region, does that excess development, does that glut of property that essentially, like you said, is empty, like some of our suburbs here were in the United States mm-hmm. in, in 2007, does that cause concern for you and your associates and people you work with back in Bangladesh? Are they looking at that and saying this could be a bigger problem for all of us? It's definitely a concern. Bangladesh is a frontier market. So we're not plugged into the complexity of the global, whether it's emerging market or the developed market. So from that standpoint, we're largely like, you know, we shield ourselves. It is, it is definitely concerning because Bangladesh produces, it's the second largest manufacturer of apparel. So we export apparel to like in Europe, the United States. If markets in Europe and United States are impacted, so Bangladesh will be impacted right. for sure. We're looking to attract more uh, foreign investors in our capital market. That would be a concerning uh, matter as well. So yes, from that standpoint, Keep making sure the supply chain of raw materials are secured and making sure that political stability is not there 
even in India, the biggest issue they have is it's not a political stability, it's political instability and bureaucracy. So once that happens, then it stifles businesses, businesses trajectory changes. And that's what sometimes we're also scared about. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm took a different turn. <clears throat> But that's how far I could tell you. But other than that, how it would impact Bangladesh, we don't know. But what we know is we sit in between India and China, and they're not having a good time right now. Yeah. Um, so they are in conflict with each other. And now we sit in large, as a largest trading partner of India. And at the same time, China builds roads and bridges infrastructure for us and we buy military equipment from them so this is a dilemma like this is where not i would want to be i hope madam prime minister is handling it i mean i think she's handling it quite well so in terms of you know china obviously this big discussion about belt and road initiative where china i think it was in 2013 where they came out and basically said they wanted to because the thing about china if you look at them historically for them, the last hundred years is an aberration. It's not where they view themselves in, in, on the world stage. I think they call it, they term it internally, the century of humiliation. Mm -hmm. They did not industrialize as fast as the West. They were dominated by the West. And now they view themselves as taking their rightful place, again, leading the world. And putting together this whole, again, this whole Belt and Road, which is essentially the new Silk Road, there's a lot of different names for it. But my understanding is, and you mentioned this, that they're building infrastructure in Bangladesh right now. And they're, and they're now, they happen to be a partner in your exchange in right. Dhaka, right. where India is not. Right. And my understanding in terms of how they're doing this is they are basically um, offering a lot, of, a lot of aid, a lot of construction, a lot of infrastructure. And the strings were in the past of the United States, it, it might've at least theoretically been human rights issues for China. It's no, 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 we're gonna, we will control this port. Or in your case, we will control this exchange or we will, they're getting, they're getting amazing economic power in exchange for what they're doing. How do you, how do you feel? And it's a huge question. And, and I know that we, that we got a lot more things we need to talk about today too, but how do you feel about Belt and Road and, and the future of, of connecting Asia with Europe and how countries like Bangladesh are in the emerging world and Southeast Asia, how do they, how do they fit into that? Yeah, Belt and Road is interesting. If it is purely like, hey, we will build infrastructure so that we can connect better, fantastic. But if it is some kind of a debt trap for many countries that we will build it and we will extract a lot of your minerals out of your country to our, then it is very concerning. They did the same thing in Sri Lanka. Right. They built the port, Sri Lanka defaulted. They run the port. <laughs> they run the port. Mm -hmm. And that scared India now, because India sits up, sorry, Sri Lanka is in the, in, in the southern part of India. Mm -hmm. Now militarily, now China, through their, whether uh, their commercial vessel or military vessel, now they can, they have the movement, they have access to the port that gives you intelligence. So now they can like, you know, figure out where your sub submarines are, where your and, cruise ships are. And Sri Lanka at one point was part of India as well. I mean, it, right. it was part of India right. before it became independent. Right. So imagine if you're a, a listener in the United States listening to this, let's say Hawaii for some reason became independent. Now the Chinese have a port there in Hawaii. Right. It'd be the same thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So when China sold two submarines to uh, Bangladesh, there's diesel power submarine, and there was a big tussle with India and Bangladesh because India did not want 
Bangladesh to acquire the submarines. Right. Why? Because if you acquire that, acquiring two submarines means you are acquiring command, like a, a training package from China as well. Right. So that means Chinese intelligence agents and like, you know, naval officials will be in Bangladesh. Right. So that's what scared India. And the Chinese are going to see everything that that submarine Abs- sees, ab- whether they say they are or not. Absolutely. Yeah. The, like, you know, while, while you're training them. Yeah. And China is fantastic at it. Bits and pieces of intelligence and putting it together in, in, in Beijing. From that standpoint, the, the other thing was China offered to build a, a deep sea port for Bangladesh. They offered it. And it didn't go through because India was against it. So politically, that thing, uh, that failed. China concerns me, uh, going back to Belt and Road Initiative, we owe, I, I don't know the exact figure, maybe six to $10 billion to China because of different financing for infrastructure projects. And they just built the, the bridge, one of the largest, like, you know, a bridge in Bangladesh. That was a fantastic accomplishment. But my point is, are we taking the death trap? Are we taking the bait? I'm yeah. sorry, yeah. And then then you default and then God knows what happens. And I think about that too, even in terms of the United States. I mean, the bait for us in the last 30 years of building up China was cheap labor and cheap manufacturing. Right. And padding the bottom line to major you know, Fortune 500 companies. Absolutely. And in exchange for that, I think, and, I, and now we can talk a little bit about COVID response here in the last couple of years. In exchange for that, we found ourselves in a position in March of last year when this thing that comes from China, mm-hmm. that people are are more wary, let's say, about you know asking questions about the origins of this right. thing. Right. But we suddenly find out that a lot of our medicines and a lot of our PPE and a lot of stuff that's quite frankly cheap and easy to make, but we don't make it here. In many ways, that was that was kind of the death trap the United States took as well. It was, it was very, it was it was a very short sighted, I think in terms of saving pennies to but missing what the larger what the larger game is here and it, it does lead me i think it, when i look at what's on uh, the united states what we debate and argue about in our political system it seems really childish and silly compared to say china who is who's taking a decades and decades if not generational view of the world right i mean we're playing we're not even playing checkers at this point That's and they're, they're right. playing like it's not chess. What is it? Was the, the was the Japanese game that's supposedly incredibly? You know the one thing, you know, right? <laughs> right. Uh, but so they're, they're they're playing they're playing ten levels beyond us here. Definitely. I mean, they have they have patience. All right, listener, you're not going to believe this. I'm actually jumping in, and I'm going to interrupt these two gentlemen right in the middle of their conversation because. This conversation was amazing, and it went way longer than we had planned for one podcast. So we're splitting it into two. So you're going to have to come back for the part two of this podcast when Sammy comes back and Brent and him get into a tremendous conversation. You're not going to want to miss that second part. So please stay tuned for that. So that'll be out in about two weeks. Be sure to tune in for that. But we want to thank you so much for joining us today and listening to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it really easy to share it with your family and friends. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. 
Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available.